Please be seated. The narrative we often listen to says we are powerless to overcome life's obstacles, that we are destined for defeat. But scripture tells us a different story. As Romans 8 and 9 fearlessly declare, we aren't just conquerors, we are more than conquerors through Jesus. Discover what it means to be more than a conqueror. Appreciate you college guys helping lead our service this morning. Good job. And we are thankful for all of you. We certainly are. We, we say that a lot, and I hope our actions back that up as well. You mean so much to us. So we're thankful all of you are here. We're thankful everyone is here today. It is good to be together. We continue in our series on Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be in verses 18 through 25. And so let me just direct your focus to the reading of God's word this morning. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up into the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Let's join together and pray. Father God, thank you for your word that speaks life and truth into us, into our lives, into our community of faith, into our choices, our thinking, our actions. Father, thank you for your word that shows us who you are, that reminds us who we are. Father, may our hearts and our minds be open and receptive to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever stopped and really thought about what heaven will be like? Have you ever just paused and, and thought about that transition that, that most of us, if G, unless Jesus comes back, that all of us will make from life to death to eternal life? Do you ever just stop and think about that? I'm reminded of uh, the man who wrote that well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, John Newton. On his deathbed, someone asked him, are you still with us? And he whispered, I am still in the land of the dying, but soon I shall be in the land of the living. What is that transition going to be like? Several years ago, one of our shepherds, one of our elders would, would always stand up here and every time he led a prayer, at the end of that prayer, he would pray that God would take us by the hand and lead us across the chilly waters of the Jordan into eternity, onto the other side. And what he was saying is, God, take us home to be in heaven. And he used this notion of crossing the Jordan, which is very biblical. And that's what we do. We use words and ideas and pictures and images because that's all we have. As humans, that's what we use. That's what we have. We use those things to try to conjure up a picture of what heaven will be like. And sometimes we even borrow some 
stereotypical ideas and we sort of merge those together into this blurry picture and we come up with things like well yeah I'm going to meet Peter at St. Peter at the pearly gates or I'm going to walk down the streets of gold or I'm going to be you know with wings floating on clouds or playing harps or singing all day and we kind of have this mumble jumbled picture of what heaven will be like and I suspect some of those words and some of those images especially those that come from God's word are useful and helpful but any word, any image, any picture that we use just doesn't do heaven justice. They are grossly inadequate to fully capture the glory that will be revealed, that we will share in someday. If you've been to very many funerals, I'm sure you've heard that song, I Can Only Imagine. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me, I can only imagine. Can you imagine the moment? Can you imagine that moment? God welcomes you into eternity. When your mortal body takes on immortality. When God somehow reaches down and wipes away any lingering tears from your face from all the pain, the suffering, the heartache that you have endured in this life and that you have caused. That moment when he gently reaches out and grabs you by the hand and he says, you are my precious child. Welcome into the life that you were always meant to live. I can only imagine. I can only imagine. In our text in Romans chapter 8, Paul points us to that moment. He gives us a glimpse. He uses words, images, what we have to point us to that moment so that we would live with a sense of purpose, so that we wouldn't just give up, so that we would have hope to keep putting one foot in front of the other. He gives us this vision of heaven, not so much what it's going to be like, but what it will mean. He's giving us perspective. So in our text, Paul continues with one of the themes he started earlier, this idea that we are children of God. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. He says, but as children of God, you have not yet received your full inheritance. You have been elevated in status to sonship. That means you have an inheritance, but you don't have it yet, not in its fullness. You will receive that. You have that to look forward to. You will be an heir and a co-heir with Christ. And this inheritance that you will receive isn't obviously one of possessions or estates or finances. It is a crown of life, a crown of life in heaven. And then he says in verse 23 that your body will be redeemed. That's good news, right? These weary, worn-out bodies will be fully restored and transformed into resurrected bodies. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable will put on this idea of being imperishable. The mortal will put on this, this notion of immortality. And it's not just a notion, it's not just an idea. That's what you will become as you are transformed in your body into this resurrected body. You get to trade that old body for a new one. Amen? <laughs> That's good news. But you also... Listen to this, once and for all. You also have all of your own brokenness healed. 
Everything that you have done and everything that has been done to you will be removed, will be redeemed. For years, I have, I have read uh, some of the work by an author. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. And she writes a lot on grief and suffering, on loss. In 1967, when she was 17 years old, she dove into a body of water, thinking it was deeper than it was, and she ended up breaking her back, and she was paralyzed at 17, living her life in a wheelchair. Someone asked her recently what she looked forward to most in heaven. Here's what she said. She said, you look at me in this wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years, and most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to your new body. She says, yeah, I am. That's one of the fringe benefits. But notice this. She says, what I'm really looking forward to is a new heart. I'm really looking forward to a new heart. She goes on to say, a heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases. A heart free of fudging the truth a heart free from hogging the spotlight, a heart free of not believing the best of others, a heart free of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I can't wait. I can't wait to have a new heart free from sin. You see, that's what awaits us. Not just a new body, but a new heart. That's life, eternal life, with the source of life. Maybe the best word to describe what awaits us is the word that Paul uses here in our text, the word glory. It's not really a word we use much, is it? Glory. What do you think of when you think about glory? You think about victory, you think about beauty, you think about things that are majestic and superior, glory. Verse 18, our present sufferings don't compare to the glory that will be revealed in us that's how the NIV translates that little word in it could also be for it could be to us we don't really know for sure but we know that we will participate in the glory of God later he's going to say in verse 30 that we are that we are glorified that all of those that God called he also justified and those he justified he glorified we are headed to glory. But we, not, we know we're not there yet, don't we? It hasn't happened yet. Before we enter into glory, Paul reminds us of something we already know. We live in a world stained by sin. We live in a world damaged by disease, darkness, and death. Some of you sitting here today know that all too well and all too recent. Paul tells us what we already know. Before glory, there is groaning. That's the word he uses, groaning. Creation is groaning. Humanity is groaning. Groaning is Scripture's way of saying we experience pain and suffering in this world that isn't as it should be. Sometimes our only response is to mutter garbled sounds of deep despair. To groan we witness it in creation don't we just a few nights ago how many of us were gathered around our tvs watching as storms and tornadoes ripped through our state leaving behind this path of destruction and even death groans of creation 
The evidence is everywhere in our material world. This world isn't as it should be. It's not as it was when God spoke it into existence and said what? It is good. Natural disasters, pandemics, cancer, Alzheimer's, suffering, loss, death, groans of creation. But as Paul says, this isn't just happening around us, it happens to us. We are groaning, he says, because we are both victims of and participants in creation's brokenness. A world filled with things like war and violence and shootings and injustice and hatred and racism and terrorism and poverty, and so many other things, addiction, mental health crises. You could go on and on, all bearing witness to the brokenness, not just of this world, but the brokenness of humanity. And we, as I said, are both victimized by this, and we are participants in this brokenness. We groan. But we groan not just because we live in a world that is imperfect. We groan because we try to live as followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even while here on earth. And any time you live opposed to the ways of the world, you will stand out. You live against the grain. The world doesn't understand. The world ridicules. Paul says we share in the sufferings of Christ. Do you ever feel misplaced? Do you ever feel misunderstood? In a world that champions values and ideologies and lifestyles that are so contrary to the kingdom, do you ever feel like, I don't belong? Welcome to being called out. Welcome to being holy. Not perfect, not better than, not exclusive, not superior. Just living a life ordered by the values of the kingdom of heaven rather than the values of the world. So you live like a fish out of water, like a square peg in a round hole, like a refugee in a hostile foreign country. We live as strangers, exiles. A few years ago, I was preaching a sermon on Ecclesiastes and talking about the brokenness of our world the writer you know talks about how everything is meaningless and I use that phrase the world is broken and afterwards maybe you've heard me tell this story before afterwards a a lady came up to me with with a young child with her and she said when you said the world is broken my granddaughter said then fix it I wish I could I wish I could And yet, as a follower of Jesus, as an ambassador of Christ, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you and I are to work together as the church to bring heaven to earth, to not just pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but to be a part of the answer to that prayer, to enact and embody that notion that heaven comes down to earth. And every once in a while, when the church is at its best, and we are being led by the Spirit, completely reliant upon God, humbly following him, in some moments we get glimpses, don't we? We get glimpses of heaven. Those thin spaces, those sacred moments, that holy ground where we see 
and experience heaven. But ultimately, God is the Redeemer. He is the Redeemer who will make all things new. You see, glory awaits us. But for now, we groan. We join creation in groaning. But what happens between the two? What happens between groaning and glory? You see, there's a space there, isn't there? Between groaning and glory, there's this this space, this awkward, tension-filled area that we have to navigate, that we have to negotiate, that we have to, to live in. What do we do in that space? It's like a cosmic waiting room that we find ourselves in, knowing we need the healing touch of the great physician, but not knowing when that will happen. It's the in-between time. To use Paul's metaphor here in our text, life and creation are pregnant with power and glory. But in the throes of labor, of labor before the much-anticipated birth of that long-awaited child. The in-between time. As it has been described, it is, it is the already-but-not-yet aspect of life in God's kingdom. We are, as he says, children of God, but we haven't received our full inheritance. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the phrase he uses. We have the first fruits of the Spirit as a deposit, but we haven't yet experienced the fullness of the Spirit. So we wait. We wait. But let me ask you this. What do you do while you wait? That seems to be the question that Paul addresses here in this text. What do you do while you wait? As we're groaning, awaiting glory, what do you do? A few years ago in the Houston airport, there was a problem. They kept receiving complaints about waiting time at baggage claim. Can you imagine people in the airport complaining? That almost never happens, right? None of us have ever done that. People were complaining because they had to wait so long at baggage claim to get their, their bags, and so the executives at the airport said, we've got to make some changes. They hired more baggage handlers and were able to reduce the waiting time to eight minutes at baggage claim. But you know what? Still, people complain. Complaints poured in. So they went back to the drawing board, and they looked at it, and they said, you know what? The average passenger only takes one minute to walk from his or her arrival gate to baggage claim, where they then wait for several minutes on their luggage. So here's what they did. They moved all the arrival gates farther away from baggage claim. So people had to walk farther to get to the luggage, but once they got there, many times the luggage was already there waiting on them, and the complaints stopped. Aren't we funny? We are so funny. There's a researcher at MIT. He is known as the world's expert on waiting. How would you like to have that title? Yes, I am the world's expert on waiting. How would you like to work with that guy? He's probably always on time. Or maybe he's never on time and everything's a social experiment. I don't know. But he looked at this airport situation. He says, that is exactly what the research shows. He said, the research shows that it's not the amount of time that people wait that's the problem. It's what they are doing while they wait. He said, the psychology of waiting suggests that we tolerate occupied time much better than unoccupied time. 
We want to be doing something. We want to be busy as we wait. So what are we doing? What are we busy doing while we wait? As we groan, as we join creation in groaning, knowing this world isn't as it should be, knowing glory is awaiting, what do we do while we wait? We have some choices to make. Some people choose to look around at what they see and act on it. In other words, they see the brokenness. They see the injustice. And they either give in or, or maybe even give up. Maybe they see the evil in the world. They see things that aren't as they should be, but there's this pull on them. You know, I'm tired of waiting on God. I'm tired of waiting for, for something better. I'm tired of going through the motions. And there's this pull, there's this draw that causes them to sometimes just give in and throw up their hands and say, I'm just going to add to the chaos. Now, that's not what we say, but we just, it's more of, of, of giving in on what we long for and just joining the world. I mean, how many times have we seen people on video come unhinged because things aren't as they should be? And unfortunately, many times, those are faith-professing people. They're adding to the chaos that are causing others to groan because we misbehave. Sometimes we just give in and we say, you know what, I'm just going to live like the world lives. And if there is a God, let him sort it out at the end. For others, it's looking around at what they see, the oppression, the injustice. Why do children suffer? Why do bad things seem to happen who, to people who are trying to be faithful? Why are there wars? Why is all this? And, and you just kind of give up. I can't take it. It doesn't make sense. I can't make sense of, of suffering in our world. I can't make sense of natural disasters that take people's lives, innocent people. I can't make sense of war and, and oppression and, and children suffering. I, I just don't have a paradigm that puts things in the proper place. And so I, I, I gotta give up. Maybe you felt that way before. Maybe you know people who have given up on God, who've given up on, on the church because They've been disappointed. They've been disillusioned. They've been hurt. Or maybe they just can't make everything fit together. They just don't have the answers they need for all the questions. And they just give up. You can do that. I hope that you won't. But there's another choice. Rather than looking around at what you see and acting on it, what if you looked forward to what you cannot see? and acted on that do you see that phrase in the text it's used a couple of times one of those is in verse 23 we wait eagerly we don't get caught up in what's happening in the world we don't we don't get dragged down by what's happening in the world we don't get too disillusioned or too disappointed because we are anticipating we wait eagerly that word in the text it literally means to crane your neck to move your head to crane your neck to see what's coming it's the child at the parade who's craning her neck around all the big people who are blocking her view because she wants to see her favorite part of the parade that's about to come around the corner. And so she's bending her neck, craning her neck to see it. She's anticipating what's about to happen. That's the word here. Waiting in wonder. Waiting in anticipation. Waiting in, what's Paul's word? Hope. Hope. 
Look at verse 24. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We crane our necks to see because we know it's coming. It's the best part. And it's on its way. So we wait eagerly. We wait patiently. We wait in hope. We cannot get bogged down. We cannot get burdened by what we see in this unredeemed world that only takes us to dark places. It only leads to doubt, to despair. Our eyes are fixed somewhere else. We crane our necks to see over the horizon, to see around the corner, to see past the distractions, to see what God is going to do. We know this isn't the end of the story. We know that creation that is now groaning will be made new. We know that our bodies that are getting older and wearing out will be redeemed. We know that the groaning will give way to the glory. So we wait patiently and eagerly and hopefully. You see, we need to occupy our time. We need something to do. So what do we do? We live with hope. But more than that, we share that hope. We share that hope with a world that desperately needs hope. A world that is in short supply of hope right now. We model what it looks like to live with hope. And we invite others into a life filled with hope. N.T. Wright uses Paul's metaphor here. And he says, the whole creation is in labor, longing for God's new world to be born. The church is called to share that pain and that hope. The church is not to be apart from the pain of the world. It is to be in prayer at precisely the place where the world is in pain. That is part of our calling, our high but often strange role in God's purposes of new creation. So we join creation in groaning through the pain of this fragile world. But we know that our groaning will one day turn to glory. So we wait we live with hope, and we share that hope. You remember how he started this section of Scripture? He said, whatever your present sufferings are, whatever you're going through, whatever your circumstances, as bad as they may be, as unfair as they may be, they don't compare to the glory that will be revealed in you, for you, to you. They don't compare. I can only imagine. And I know that God can do so much more than we imagine. Don't give up. Don't give in. Look to see what's coming. And live with the sense of hope that sustains you. And I hope that it's so real that it overflows in your life and it draws other people to the one who provides hope. If we can encourage you in that journey, let us do it. Let us pray for you. Let us support you. In just a moment, a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me off the hallway. When we stand up in just a minute, you can exit out of the doors and make your way there. They would love to talk to you, to listen to you, to pray for you, to encourage you. We will do that as a church family if you want to come down to the front. Or maybe today you're ready to say, Jesus is my Savior and I want to give my life to him. I want to be a child of God. 
I am tired of groaning in this broken world. I anticipate and look forward to the glory that will be revealed. I want that in my future. God provides it. Just receive it. Maybe today you're ready to be baptized. If we can do something for you today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand. Be with me, Lord, I cannot live without Thee. I cannot try to take one step alone. I cannot bear the loads of life unaided. I need Thy strength to lean myself upon. Be with me. Everywhere about me, they cannot harm or make my heart afraid. Be with me, Lord, when loneliness or take.